Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Gary. And I'm Amalith. Good to talk to you both again. We've had loads of emails to show at linuxdowntime.com, so let's cover some of those now. Nathan writes regarding the episode where we talked about getting started with coding and development. I would love a follow-up more along the lines of how to get hired as a software developer, particularly if you've only ever worked blue-collar jobs and have no higher education. There are likely a lot of people drawn to Linux and coding who are, like me, not exactly social. For me, learning to code has been the easier part of the equation, while actually putting those skills to work for pay is quite elusive. So when it comes to my first paid programming job, I actually got it while I was still in school. And it's because the company came to my school to recruit people. And they were looking for people that knew Linux. And at this time, I'd already been working on Pigeon and open source for a couple of years. And that wasn't exactly the role they were looking for to fill while they were there. But they asked if anybody knows Linux and that kind of stuff. And that's actually how I got my first job was, you know, my open source experience kind of opened that door for me so that I didn't come in directly at the entry level and just kind of went from there. My experience is not exactly normal, but I can give some advice from a course I took at university last semester. And that professor said that we should take a shotgun style approach, just send your resume out to as many different companies as you possibly can. Make them say no to you. Don't close the door yourself, if that makes sense. My experience personally has been, I was like part of a a Linux user group in my area, and I mentioned that I was looking for a job. One of the guys in that group owned his own company. He sent me a message. I said, okay, I'd love to help. I only know systems administration with Linux stuff. I've never actually done any programming outside of Java that went in one year out the other in university. And he said, oh, that's fine. You can learn it on the job. You'll pick it up quick. And I did. And I think it's been something like two years now. And then in that time, I started my own company to do consulting for other businesses in the area. I picked up a few clients that way. And just recently, I picked up another big client that I'm going to be half-time for to start off with and full-time for in the future. I'm not going to say exactly what it is quite yet, but that situation was even further from from normal. I sent someone who works there a message asking if they had any positions. He said, yeah, I already know who you are from your open source work elsewhere on the internet. (laughs) They were familiar with NixNet. They were familiar with all the stuff I run. And they said, yeah, sure, just send me your resume so I have a better enumeration of your experience. I sent that the next day. And then the day after, they said, yep, you've got the job. You can start next month. And that was a super quick turnaround and an awesome experience. Now, you said that both of those are not normal, but I disagree, man. I think that is very normal. I think it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. It's about getting out there in the community, establishing yourself as someone who is helpful, knowledgeable, and involved. And you will get to know people in the community. And then when you are looking for a job, you put it out there that you're looking and people will help you out. I mean, I know people who were laid off relatively recently who have just walked into other jobs because of the community that they're part of, because they know enough people, have enough contacts. They just put it out there and they get themselves a job really quickly. It's obviously harder when you're first starting out, but 
it's relatively easy to get involved with communities and keep your GitHub or whatever ancient system you use, Gary, Not up ancient. to date. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Esoteric. Sure. <laughs> but just, you know, get your code out there and contribute to open source projects and stuff and just meet people and use networking to get a job. It's not really any different from any other industry. If you want to be a plumber, you know, you just, you put yourself out there. You make friends with people who are in the construction trade and get taken on as a plumber's mate or whatever. Yeah, I'd argue too that it's probably easier in the software world because we have meetups and stuff. And yeah, the uh, bad times, you know, affected things a lot, but things are starting to come back. And you can meet people at these meetups and, you know, start networking and that's how you can find jobs that aren't listed and stuff like that. Or maybe they're not listed well and so on. So there are kind of two approaches I'm hearing. The one that is more community focused and connections and networking that it seems like we've all gone through. And then there's the more university, traditional corporate approach of trying to work for a big commercial entity that's not in the open source space. So I guess it kind of depends on what you want to, where you want to work. If you want to work for one of those companies that's not in the open source space, then being very active in those spaces are probably not going to be a big help. You'd be surprised though, because there's a lot of people who go to Linux meetups and stuff who work for huge commercial companies that aren't interested in open source. And any networking is going to help you. That said, you're scattergun approach of just send CVs out to every single company you possibly can. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you've wasted some time and you want to have your CV or your resume on point regardless, because the networking is not going to get you a job. It's going to get you in the door with someone who will maybe get you the job. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say LinkedIn is not necessary for me. I have never found it useful, regardless of how many people harp on the fact that you have to have a LinkedIn profile. I have one, but it's all full of disinformation. Nothing on my LinkedIn profile is actually accurate, and it has not hindered me in the slightest. Well, so you put deliberate disinformation on your LinkedIn. Yeah, because like bots will come in and scrape LinkedIn for all of your personal information. And that all eventually shows up on the stupid people search sites that lead people directly to you. Not to mention feeding the large language models as well. Also that, yeah. Putting false information on LinkedIn is a great way to obfuscate what personal information is online about you. That is a novel approach, Amaleth, I must say, because I am <laughs> led to believe that having your LinkedIn be totally up to date is basically part of your resume at this point. It hasn't been for me personally. A couple months ago when I was looking for work, I updated my LinkedIn to say, you know, looking for work and all that. I've gotten less messages about jobs now that I've said that than I did beforehand. All right, we've got quite a lot of feedback about our CLA episode, the Contributor License Agreements. One from Augustine. Yeah, Augustine gave us a couple of links to, it's called a fiduciary license agreement. And it's basically exactly what we talked about wanting in that episode. It's a legal construct created by the FSF Europe and used by KDE, among others, to solve a lot of those concerns. The FLA transfers economic rights, not moral rights. So moral rights are basically your right to be identified as the author 
In many countries, such as France, your moral rights are inalienable and non-transferable. But in the U.S., for example, you can relinquish your moral rights. And many social media companies do that. So whenever you like upload your artwork or pictures of yourself, you relinquish your moral rights so that social media company can do whatever they like with them and claim that they're the author, for example. But an FLA only addresses economic rights and it transfers those rights to a trustee, the new holder of those rights. But it also places some restrictions on that trustee to ensure that your contribution remains free software. Well, Richard said the FSF is doing something similar to the concept that was discussed on the show. The FSF requires copyright assignment for projects under their copyright. Their agreement limits the FSF to only distributing the code under terms that allow anyone to redistribute the code under the same terms. So it seems like the FSFE and the FSF have got two slightly different approaches, but are doing essentially what we had talked about wanting. Personally, I do very much like the fiduciary license agreement and intend to use that when I need to. Well, as usual, the FSFE, who at this point I think should probably change their name because they (laughs) seem to be much more switched on than the original FSF in America and much more relevant, I guess, and less of an object of ridicule at this point. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. But yeah, the bottom line is that we're not lawyers and (laughs) this stuff is complicated and it kind of just goes to show that as a developer you've got to kind of try and have a bit of legal knowledge, but it always comes down to the fact that I'm not a lawyer and you sort of got to seek proper legal opinions when you have to. I mean, what do you do about that, Gary? Do you just muddle through? Pretty much. It'd be really nice if there was, I don't want to say like a lawyer you could just talk to about this stuff, but basically if there was a lawyer you could just talk about this stuff, or even if they just had like a real quick checklist of like, hey, here's some things you might want to know. Like most of the stuff, I've learned over the years has been from FSF or GNU or whatever. It's like, you know, or the uh, choose a license site that GitHub runs. I don't remember the exact domain. And, you know, you just pick up stuff as you go from there. But like at the same time, it's just like, I shouldn't have to worry about this kind of stuff. Isn't conservancy supposed to help with this kind of stuff? I think so. I don't want to talk ill of people, but when we're talking about Software Freedom Conservancy or Software Freedom Law Center, There are two entities in a huge pool of open source, and they get overloaded a lot. Mm. So, like, trying to get an opinion or response from them, if you need it in a timely manner, it's not going to happen. Yeah. At least that's been my experience. It may be completely different for others, but that has been my personal experience with it. Yeah, if you're a major project, maybe you might be able to get a quicker response. But for the smaller projects, yeah, it must be difficult for them to assign the resources because there's only finite resources, right? So yeah, right, right. tricky. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. Kickstart a fresh autumn routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook a tasty meal at home. They do the hard part and you take the credit. Ever wish you could spend less time planning, shopping and cooking for the family and more time with them? From easy time-saving breakfasts and family dinners to kid-approved lunches and tasty snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. 
Gary tried HelloFresh and said the meals were absolutely delicious and had him making things he hadn't had the confidence to try by himself before. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 50LDT and use code 50LDT for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. That's hellofresh.com slash 50LDT and code 50LDT for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxdowntime.com support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. All right, Patrick says, The discussion about immutable file system distros on episode 74 was good, but there was one area I was hoping you'd explore a bit more. That's the confluence of a read-only OS and containerization. There's really no reason why they should be connected. You mentioned it in passing, but the macOS system integrity protection method of immutable desktop absolutely does not rely on containers. Protected directories or files are identified by an extended file attribute or by presence in the rootless.conf file. I think that the immutable desktop has a chance at being the best way for people who don't want to tinker with their OS to use desktop Linux, but to me, it has to be more like macOS SIP and less like Android. Do you guys see that as a weakness to the same degree that I do, or is the Android model really the only path forward for an immutable Linux desktop? So there's kind of a couple points here that I think are getting a little convoluted. There's the, uh, you know, how do you install your software and then the core OS, right? To be honest, I've never been a fan of the way that Android updates. I haven't been a long-term Linux user with package managers. I'd much rather have smaller, more frequent updates than the entire image, right? So uh, that's basically where I fall on the immutable OS stuff. But, you know, use what you want. But, like, Android packages are essentially containerized themselves, right? They, they can't access other stuff. Everything has to be done permission-wise, stuff like that. So, like, the Android model is basically what you'd get with, like, um, Silver Blue or Ublue or any of that stuff where... You know, the recommendation is that your applications should be containerized. But that's a recommendation, right? It doesn't have to be that way. So I think with the Linux world, like we normally get, right, we kind of get the, you know, do what you want thing. So like your home partition on an immutable distro is still your home partition, right? Like when you update the core OS, that updates, your home directory stays the same. So there's no reason why you can't install something directly to your home directory and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of where I stand on it, right? Just with the Linux way, you pick which way you want to go with and go from there. You only have to look at the success of the Steam Deck, though, to realize that maybe this approach is potentially very successful for other distros. That's slightly different because they're selling an appliance. But then most people see a laptop as an appliance these days, don't they? Not the kind of people who listen to our show necessarily, but most normal people just want to treat a laptop as an appliance. And it just so happens that the Steam Deck is a gaming appliance. But, you know, I'm hearing from hardcore Windows users who have no intention of replacing SteamOS on there because people just stick with the defaults. And at the moment, I mean, I'm starting to sound like George Castro here, but at the moment, (laughs) desktop Linux is a bit flaky for normal users, isn't it? Yeah, I'd agree with that, especially the, uh, the application point of view. Like I have a couple Chromebooks around the house that are just a internet browsing machines, right? Like I'm not going to go and throw Debian on them so I can have a full distro. It's like, no, this is just here to watch YouTube as I'm going to sleep or something, right? 
So the the appliance nature is really nice for that matter. But I think the what it really comes down to, especially with the case of the Steam Deck, is the default out-of-the-box experience is good enough that there's not really a reason for them to install Windows as well, right? There's no they're not gonna go through the hassle of trying to get Windows running on it for a couple games when they already have so many games that do run on the Steam Deck. Now, obviously, there's going to be exceptions to that, but I think that's where the Steam Deck stuff really comes through. I'm kind of conflicted. I can see the benefits of having an immutable desktop for average people, but I also believe that there are a lot of benefits to containerized applications that you just can't get with uncontainerized applications. And it does seem to me like the two of them going together is is kind of perfect, especially when those containerized applications are being integrated at the OS level, like you get with Ubuntu or Fedora or something like that. When you're on, say, Arch, for example, you have to do all that integration work yourself, and it's a pain in the ass, and I don't want to do that. But when someone else is making it a pleasant experience, I think it's okay. How would you know about Arch, Amaleth? Oh, I don't know. I don't have any idea. All oh, right, yeah. I'm surprised you made it this far <laughs> into the episode without mentioning it. I try to avoid that. <laughs> you don't do a very good job, I'm afraid. But all that said, the macOS approach does work very well. I mean, I do not care for macOS. I love the hardware that it comes with. And I wish I could run Linux on it. And I know Asahi and everything, and they're getting better, blah, blah, blah. But it's not as much of a first-class experience. So I wish I could have just a flawless experience on it. And maybe one day that will come. But anyway, I don't care for macOS. The interface, just the weird stuff about how Enter just renames files and just the file manager is terrible. And I've talked about this loads of times elsewhere. But it does work as a solid experience. And, you know, as a slightly different approach to an immutable OS, I think it could work. But it's about momentum with Linux, isn't it? The the bottom line is that we've got the momentum with Silverblue and its derivatives and similar projects. We just seem to be going down this flat pack route. And sure, someone else could make something more like macOS, but you can't fight the tide. Flat pack is how software is going to be delivered to users on Linux. I mean, it already is for a lot of people. I would imagine a good chunk of the audience get most of their applications as flat packs these days and give it another 10 years maybe and there pretty much won't be much other choice, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, there'll always be choice. It's Linux, of course, but mainstream distros will all be using flat pack, I would have thought, in about 10 years. I think the direction we're headed is the immutable containerized desktop that that silver blue is sort of pushing forward that that's one route and then the other route is going to be the more diy everything uncontained approach and i think that's what we're going to end up with eventually yeah just like we've ended up with dev one dev one still exists for people who don't like system d but like linux and you know they're going strong they had a release based on the recent debian release it was only like what a month or so behind the debian release and you know, you're going to have people who will cling on to this old traditional method. We might all end up being one of them, but I doubt I will somehow. I think I'll just go wherever the wind blows me, and uh, I'm sure Ubuntu will go that route eventually. I'm going to keep trying them and see how they work for me periodically. Yeah, 
But I do think the momentum is just with this Android style model. Yeah. For better or worse. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with that. But I'm going to, you know, hang on to my Debian install as long as I can. But um, I do use Flatpak for a couple things, but, you know, it's more pick and choose for me than an entirety. I do have some apps installed that are only officially distributed as snaps or flat packs, but the way I've installed them removes them from that container and installs them natively. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Gary. And I've been Amalith. See you later. <laughs>